Hey guys, how's it going? Scott here, back with another episode of the SBL podcast for you. And this week, we've got the awesome Joe's on with us. Now, when it comes to the art of base building, there are a few luthiers who can match Joe's on's technical knowledge and approach. You're going to hear the full backstory on how he cut his teeth working at a custom guitar repair shop in Buffalo, New York in the early 80s before founding Zon Guitars in 1981 and relocating to Redwood City, California. Joe is going to give us the lowdown of his use of his composite and carbon fiber necks, his work with pickup electronics expert Bill Bartolini, and his relationship with Zon artists such as Bill Gould of Faith No More, Dick Lovren of Me Sugar, and of course, you'll probably know Michael Manrin, for whom Joe designed and built the Hyperbase, which I'd, and I'm not sure if you've checked it out, but you've got you've got to check out Michael Manrin playing Joe Zon's Hyperbase. In a nutshell, it is capable of something like ten thousand tunings. You, the bridge, you can alter all the tunings on the bridge. You can alter the tunings via the headstock. It's crazy. Just do us. In fact, what we'll do is we'll put a video on the podcast page of this episode of Michael Manrin playing enormous room it is one of the in terms of like uh, like solo bass playing I've never seen anything like it I don't think I'll ever see anything like it again it's absolutely phenomenal and in that video Michael Manrin is playing um, the the hyper bass that Joe's on built him now without further ado I'll hand over to Nick and this week's guest the amazing Joe Zon. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the SBL podcast. We're joined today by Joe Zon from Zon Guitars. Hey Joe, how's it going? Great, great. How are you doing? Really good. Really pleased to speak to you, Joe. I've been a fan uh, of your same here. work for such a long time. I've played some of your basses and they're just incredible and just unique. You've got some of this, a knack for building instruments that I would say unusual is not the right term, but just have so much identity, I think. Oh, well, thank you. That's that's really part of the goal. Um, you know, we wanted to build something that would have its own voice and uh, at the same time give uh, players their own voice as well, no matter what their musical background or genre or style. So, sure. um, you know, that that's certainly uh, part of uh, what we're about. Can you give us a bit of background, Joe, about how you got started? I know we've spoken before and I remember you telling me it was, it was in a time where there were no kind of real guidelines about how to build bases and, or any kind of manuals or stuff like that. It was kind of the learn as you go kind of thing. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, I guess I'm, I'm an accidental bass builder. Um, you know, I, I played bass uh, for a number of years and uh, I always just worked with my hands. Even when I was a little kid, I would, uh, you know, put bikes together and build my own stuff, even as a, you know, a 10, 11 year old kid. I mean, uh, I, I was always into mechanical stuff, building things and crafting things and so on. And, uh, so when I started playing at the age of 16, um, <clears throat> my dad bought me this, uh, old, uh, $60 beetle base copy. And, um, it was, you know, an okay instrument, uh, but after a while, it started falling apart, and you know, the things were rattling and coming loose, and all this kind of deal. So naturally, I just it was just my nature to take it apart and see what was wrong and fix it. And so I did, and I, I played around with that and kind of got a little bit of a bug in that. Um, 
moved on to a, uh, a, a special order uh, Gibson uh, 3BL, I think it was, and it was like an SG style base with a extra with a long scale, it was 34 inch scale, and um, played that for a while. And you know, I, I just sort of always wanted to. I was looking through the magazines back when magazines were, you know, had all featured all sorts of artists in gear and things like that um can't remember the names anymore cream magazine stuff like that i'm dating myself <laughs> and uh so um you'd see you know like so with this fender bird and uh you know eric clapton with an explorer and you'd see all, all these guys playing these different bases and um so i don't know just when i was about uh, 19 or 20 i decided i wanted to build my own instrument and so um I just, uh, my dad had a friend who worked at uh, a lumber yard and, um, you know, I asked him if I could, he'd get me some wood. So he did and came back with a slab of oak for a neck and no a slab of birch for a neck. That's what it was a birch and, and a slab of oak for the body. And so I spent the, uh, summer cutting out this imitation fender bird thing that I did. And, um, you know, I was just kind of, it was just all out of my head, just all sort of intuitive. And, uh, you know, I carefully measured the fret spacing from the Gibson that I had and, uh, pick up positioning. I go to the music stores, they drive me, I, I drive them nuts because I'm, you know, measuring things and checking this out and, you know, trying to figure out where the best place to put this is and where the bridge would live and all these kinds of things. So, um, and I built this base, and uh, I was pretty happy with it, and uh, it worked out pretty well. I built a, a couple more after that that were, uh, you know, a little different style, a little more experimenting, a little more experimental. And um, so I had been playing around with this for a while and just doing stuff on my own. And um, uh, I don't know, it was probably a couple of years later, and uh, we were playing, my band was playing some bar, and we were hanging out and uh got to talk to some bass players from you know we all kind of musicians just hang out at the clubs you know uh whether you're playing a gig or not that's sort of the place to hang and so i got to talking with uh one guy uh rick ryan in fact his name is and he was in a really popular band back in, in the day and uh so we were chatting and he asked me what i played and uh we were talking gear and i told him i played my own bass and he was like couldn't believe it so now you're lying to me and this and that you, you you're bullshitting me. So uh, I said, well, I'll bring it. To, I'll bring it tomorrow night when you guys are here and playing, and you can check it out. So um, he checked it out. I brought it over, and he checked it out. He really liked it. He said, man, this is this is great. Can I play for the rest of the set? And I said, yeah. So he played it, and 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 that sort of thing. And after everything was said and done, he just said, man, you know, I've got this Fender P bass that has you know this fret buzzing issue. Could you? you think you'd take a look at it and see if you could do something for me. So I said, well, yeah, sure. You know, and, um, and I had done some work for friends before, you know, just kind of the other guitar player in the band and stuff, just kind of frets the fret work and things. I, you know, I didn't really know what the hell I was doing. I was just kind of, you know, <laughs> just kind of using, using logic there. And, um, uh, you know, I just did things. I, I, I facilitated the repair, you know, thinking through, you know, the best course of action, you know, what the, what the end result might, what might be, what the consequences might be if the end result didn't pan out, you know, that kind of thing. Um, there were no instructional videos. There weren't any books or anything. It was just, you know, purely intuitive, like I say. And, um, 
so I got this this P base and uh, checked out the fret buzz and things. Did a little neck adjustment and uh, I uh, filed the the, uh, the frets down um, in a way that you know now is kind of similar to what the Plex thing is doing. Um, and although I didn't know it at the time, because uh, there was a a, a a a part of the neck that was a little wonky and you couldn't straighten it out. So you know logic. You know, my logic was that, well, okay, so if I just file this fret down here a little bit and then file this one here, I was able to alter the height of the frets so I could, you know, accommodate for the the, the uh, wonkiness in the neck and get it to play clear. So, um, you know, I brought it back to him a couple days later, and uh, he said, man, he said, this is great. He said, you know, he said, I've taken this base to everybody in the city. So everybody I know that does repairs has looked at it, and nobody has been able to fix it but you. And he said, you should do this for, you know, he said, you're a natural. You should do this for a living. And I'm like, yeah, okay, sure. So, <laughs> so I, I want to play bass, man. And um, so um, as luck would have it, um, you know, I went on my way, and, and uh, then I started getting these phone calls. And, um, you know, it's like, hey, Rick, uh you fixed Rick's bass and he's raving about what you did. Could you take a look at my guitar? Could you look at my bass? And before you know it, I had these people calling me wanting work to be done on their instruments. And, you know, being a starving musician, as, as you know, we all are in those days, and I'm like, yeah, I can make a couple of bucks doing this. And so uh, unknowingly, I started doing this repair work. And, um, you know, the more that I started to do, the more interested I became in it, the more I wanted to learn and uh, experiment and discover. And so, unbeknownst to me this thing sort of took a life of its own on and uh i had a business and so um you know the band thing kind of fizzled out after a while and uh, i just started devoting myself to doing repairs and um you know uh built a nice business at a place called buffalo guitar outlet and i had a real strong following and eventually we started building custom instruments and doing all sorts of crazy stuff. And um, the cool part about that, uh, being in that music store, um, is one of the premier stores in, in, in Buffalo at the time. Um, and uh, it was a, a real interesting experience. Um, I could talk for days on that. Uh, we, the, for the, uh, yeah, I won't go there. Anyway, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> So the thing is that there were, at the time, there's a fairly lively music scene in Buffalo, not only locally, but, uh, you know, with acts coming in, you know, professional acts. So, I mean, um, you know, the guy, the tech from REM came in one day and said, hey, um, we've got problems with this bass and that. And that. Can, you, can you do some work on it? So, yeah, sure. So um, I do some emergency work for them. Rick James was a local, and Rick's guys would always bring one of his many instruments in for work. We did stuff for his guitar player, Tom, um, you know, Van Halen brought their stuff in one day and that's how I got to connect with, uh, um, uh, Michael Anthony. And, uh, so I got, I got, you know, exposure with a lot of touring players as well as a lot of local players. And I got to see a lot of different instruments, which is just a, a, a fabulous experience for me because um, I got to see a lot of things that were done right and a lot of things that were done terribly wrong. And, um, you know, 
and, and I came away from that whole experience, uh, that whole journey with ideas for my own instruments to, uh, to, you know, eliminate some of those problems. These silly things like, you know, I can't tell you how many times the pickup screws were, were stripped out in a P base or J base because somebody was trying to tighten them down and it's an alder body and it strips out. Well, from that, you know, I go, well, let's use threaded inserts on our instruments because they're never going to strip out. Maybe you cross thread them, but that's not fairly unlikely. So, you know, just from that experience, you know, um, I decided that we would use threaded inserts on all of our, 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 our pickup screw, uh, housings and, and uh, neck bolts and stuff. So that stuff wouldn't get stripped out. And, um, so eventually what happened is that that store fell apart they they folded up and uh i moved into my own location and set up shop for repairs and custom builds and uh continued on with that and um that was very successful um i uh, started to get involved in working with uh composites i i studied composites in college and uh i got involved in you know working with the uh, composites for necks and stuff and um, started our own line of production instruments, our, our Zon basses. And, um, you know, those bases really are the result of my experience of repairing and building and uh, my, you know, uh, encompass what I learned from, you know, repairing instruments, the mistakes and, and, and the, uh, the good designs that, that I encountered. Can we talk about some of your designs? When, when you're setting up as a, a custom builder or a, an independent builder and you're going yeah. against such, especially with the base, established models that people are so familiar with, what were kind of the immediate challenges for you? Well, you know, I was really lucky in that um, I came in at a time when this was really in its embryonic stages, though. The whole thing with bass, I mean, um, I came in at a time where uh, it was basically Fender basses, Gibson basses, if you want to call those basses, um, but it's primarily Fender basses. And um, Alembic was the first company to break the mold and all that stuff because they were the first ones to do a, a, a two octave neck. Uh, they weren't the first ones to do the neck through body. That was done by, by Rickenbacker. But um, they experiment. They did the active electronics and brass hardware, the bridge and 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 the string nut and all those things. And so and and the exotic woods and everything. I mean, um, I was quite a fan of Olympic and, and still I am. I, I think their quality is superb. Um, uh, I'm friends with Susan and and Ron, and uh, they're terrific people. And um, um, in a way, they they inspired me to uh, pursue this 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 career of mine. Um, so, you know, as far as designs, I was influenced by by them. I mean, I was also influenced by Fender and you know everything else that was going out there. I mean, I was a sponge at that time, so I took it all in. Um, but as far as my designs were concerned, I wanted to do something that was unique, something that um, wasn't a knockoff. I didn't want to copy somebody else's thing. I wanted to do my own thing. I wanted to be recognized for what, you know, we are not for somebody else's work. And, um, 
So I came up um, with a legacy in 82 and um, it's an original design. And, you know, I did the, uh, the set in composite neck and uh, Bartolini uh, was the only company that would agree to custom wine pickups for us because at the time, like I say, at the time, you didn't have an all parts. You didn't have a Stu Mac. You didn't have any of those things. You didn't have this plethora of, of, of uh, guitar pickup manufacturers and stuff. It just didn't. It just didn't exist. So I mean, you know, um, if you wanted a set of pickups, you had to go to the music store and, and have the guy order a set of P bass pickups from Fender so that you could put those in the bass because the showcase wasn't full of Duncans or, or Aguilars or Bartolinis. So, um, you know, uh, in calling around, I, I, the few manufacturers that DeMarzio, uh, Duncan, I'm trying to think of who else might have been around at that time. Um, of all of them, Bartolini was the only one that said, well, sure, we'll do something to your design and uh, your pickup shell sort, you know, design and all this kind of thing. And, uh, <clears throat> yeah, and that was back in 81. And we've been you know, dealing with Bartolini ever since. And, uh, so, you know, part of the design was not only the, the composite neck, uh, part of it was the, uh, the pickups. The other part of it was the electronics. And, um, <clears throat> I worked for, uh, in between my, uh, in between playing the band and doing repairs. Um, I worked for, at a place called Polyfusion Electronics just for fun. Um, and I mean that sincerely, it, it, that was another incredible experience. Um, I went there to try to, to check out a bass synth that they were, they were doing. They had a, um, um, an interface and I brought my bass over and plugged it in and it was supposed to track your, you know, supposed to track your, the, 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 the notes from the bass as in, as the bass synths were at that time. And it did a fairly good job. Um, but uh, the one guy there, Ron, um, was impressed with what I was doing and, and offered me a job. And uh, so I went there to check out the bass synth and, and walked out with a, with a gig, which was kind of interesting because I love synthesizers. I've always been into synthesizers. And, you know, that was the whole – I wanted my bass to sound like a synthesizer. That's really why I was there. So um, <clears throat> I thought there would be nothing better than to have, like, my electric bass sound like a, like a, 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 a fat mini Moog. Uh, for some songs. And so, um, so I started working there and that was just an incredible experience. Um, I, Ron's a, a super perfectionist and, and I enjoyed working under him and with him. He was, so he's, uh, it was a real challenge, but, uh, it was great. And I learned the art of perfection, uh, to another level from him. Um, and, um, so one day, Ron walks in, uh, I've been there a while and Ron walks in and he shows me this, you know, pots dangling from a little plastic box. And he says, ever see one of these? I said, what is that? I said, Oh, these are active electronics. I made them for my brother-in-law's guitar. Uh, and I said, okay. Uh, so what does it do? He said, well, we can control the bass mid range and treble and not. And, and well, at the time it was just bass and treble, I think. And, um, so the light bulb went on. I said, we could do we could do some serious business with this because I knew Alembic had active electronics in their bases and nobody else was doing that. I mean, just it wasn't available. 
So um, we made a few of these up, and um, because it, then at that time I was already you know going to NAMM shows and stuff, and I knew guitar companies and that. So we uh, we sent those out to Hamer and Fender and uh, Kramer and God knows who else. And um, as a result, we ended up landing a, a couple of contracts with uh, some some manufacturers. Um, one of the biggest was with Kramer, and so. Um, I was, I was quite the chameleon. I was playing the band at night. I was doing repairs. Uh, I'd work at Polyfusion till about uh, from eight till noon or one o'clock, and then I go to the, to uh, my shop and work from one till well, depends. If I had a gig that night, it was you know a short day, and sometimes I'd pull all nighters. I'd work uh, you know right around the clock, and uh, so the Echo Electronics thing uh, worked out really well, and uh, we they were. They sold quite a number of units to um, to uh, Kramer, and then I was involved in doing some of the artist relations stuff, which was uh, kind of helped me out in uh, a different way because I was going backstage uh, with the Polyfusion gear, uh, showing them the keyboards and the pedals and stuff that they were making, and um, um, the uh, if you've ever heard that uh, keyboard solo um, in Rosanna. By Toto. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's my claim to fame. Um, that is a Polyfusion synthesizer in that in that solo. I and you were I, tell me you played it. <laughs> no, no. I wish I could play it. I wish I could play it. But um, no. But I I, would, I I put that deal together, and uh, I got those guys on board, and uh, it was a real feather in Polyfusion's cap to have a Grammy Award winning band. Yeah. With uh, their that record. Having a polyfusion synthesizers plastered all over the uh, back cover of, of the album, so uh, it's one of my more you know my prouder moments. So um, I left Polyfusion to you know strike out on my own uh, with, with just exclusively building instruments. And one of our deals was that you know they would make our electronics for us, and so they did, and they still do. And um, so. You know, going back to the design, coming back around, um, yes, you know, the composite neck, our, the, the, the Bartolini pickups, the Polyfusion electronics, uh, you know, all those aspects were things that I, you know, was, you know, involved in specifying and building, designing, you know, uh, to build the signature sound of our instruments. And uh, over the years, those have evolved in various different ways. What was it like thinking about what you were saying about Alembe with bass players just weren't aware of things like electronics and exotic woods and things like that. All of a sudden guys like you and Alembe come out and start offering these things and you get guys coming up asking for stuff. Kind of, I like, I remember Michael Manning saying, I spoke to Joe and said, well, this is what I really want. Expecting him to say, no, we can't do it. And then you kind of saying, yeah, we can do it. When we're talking about the hyper bass here. Yeah, right. Well, you know, what's interesting is that Alembic came on the scene and, and then shortly it, it, it didn't take too long for that fire to spread. Um, I think it was just one of those, you know, perfect storms, if you will, mm. where there were a bunch of luthiers out there that were going, yeah, you know, I've just, you know, somebody had to, to, to light the torch and, and it was Alembic and everybody else kind of got, you know, their other... Bill was that guy on board, you know, Mike Tobias, 
you know, Ken Smith, uh, Mike Padula, you know, all this. And um, so, uh, but I think yeah, with, with you know, hyperbase. I mean, you really took it to extremes with that, right? Yeah, exactly. And um, you know, that was kind of an interesting story because um, I was back east in Buffalo, and um, I was getting my my girlfriend was uh, sending me Wyndham Hill records, and uh, I got a few Michael Manring records, and I just honestly I wasn't as blown away by his playing as much as I was his, his compositions. I mean, if you listen to that early stuff, man, it just, it just, you know, grabs you by the throat. It's, it's just beautiful. And so, um, you know, it wasn't until I got past the, 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 the compositional work that I started listening, listening to his bass. And, uh, so I came out here <clears throat> in 87 and, um, I said, I really want to meet this guy. You know, I, I really, what had happened is I, it, I'd flown out here, went to a concert, and um, saw Michael. It was Great American Music Hall, I think it was. And I saw Michael, and uh, he was playing a PRS bass. And um, as he's playing different songs, and he gets done with one song, he wants to retune for another song. He's telling stand-up. And he's, he's, pretty, he's, he's a witty guy. He's funny. And so, um, you know, uh, he's trying to tune this thing and talk at the same time and, you know, all this kind of deal. And I'm just like, you know, crawling out of my seat thinking, Oh my God, I could do this and that. And this and like, no, he's now this wrong. There's all this stuff I could do for this guy. So I was just really pumped after that concert. And then, um, so I got in touch with our friend and, uh, like my, my, my girlfriend's friend at, at Wyndham Hill. I said, look, you gotta, you gotta put me in touch with this guy. So, um, a few months later, after me bugging the daylights out of it, she said, okay, look, Michael said, you know, give him a call and, you know, go over there and, and see him. So I, I went over there to see him, and he was moving or something like that. I took one of my bases and uh, fretless four-string and legacy. And so, um, you know, he checked it out, and he was like, yeah, this is kind of nice. Yeah, you know. And um, I kind of left there with my tail between my legs. I kind of went, Oh man, I, you know, I hear I was trying to blow this guy away and he's playing it and he's like, yeah, it's nice to know. It was, it was, he didn't really plug it in cause he was moving, but he just checked it out and listened to it acoustically and stuff. And he, you know, so it was a nice instrument and all this kind of thing. So, um, about three days later, I get a call and he says, yeah, this is Michael. I said, yeah. And I'm thinking, Oh, he changed his mind. Great. You know? <laughs> and I uh, said, you know, I've got this gig and I got a problem with my music man bass and I'm wondering if you could fix it. I'm like, Oh, here we go. <laughs> so, um, so I said, yeah, you know, sure. Why not? So he brings it over the electronics were shot. And so, uh, um, I said, look, there's nothing I can do about it. I have to put another preamp in there. I can get your Bartolini preamp, but I don't have, and it's going to take a couple of days to get one. So on and so forth, I got to wire it in. And he goes, Oh man, he's, I got a gig. I don't know what to do. And I said, well, you know, you're welcome to use my base. If, if, you know, that works for you, you know, take it and, you know, you're welcome to it. So, uh, and it was the very, it's the same base that I had shown him. So it's, yeah, okay, I'll take it. So he takes the base and da, da, da. I call him back like a, a week later and say, Hey, Michael, your, your, your music man's done. You want to come by and pick it up? He said, yeah, I'll, I'll be over. So he comes, comes by, walks in the door and he goes, so you want to build me a base, huh? And I said, yeah. He's, well, I don't know. He said, it's, I, you know, I, 
been approached by other companies and, and, you know, kind of got laughed out of the room. And I said, well, okay, try me. So he says, well, I want to do this and this. And I said, okay, so what if we just do this? What if we do this and this in addition to it? We can really do that? I said, yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. So then, so with the, you know, so the sparks start flying and, and I said, and you know, this tuning thing that you're doing with the stand up in between. So we're going to put hip shot detuners on the headstock. And he goes, what are those? And I showed it to him. And he goes, well, that's pretty cool. He says, so we can just put one here. And I said, no, we'll put them on all four. And he's like, really? I said, yeah, then we can, you know, so, um, so this whole thing evolved. And um, it was great because uh, as that instrument was being made, he would come by and just start to, you know, noodle with it, just get the feel for the neck. And he had shaped this here a little bit there. So he's really involved in how the thing was, was, was being built. And I'll never forget the first time we put it together uh, before we had the, de the detunable bridge on it uh, because I wanted to, him for, to check for, you know, the ergonomics and stuff. I mean, it was unfinished. It was raw. It was, we put strings on it. And even at that point, he brought the thing to life. It was just kind of, you could, you could, you could hear the heart beating in this thing already. And, um, it just, uh, it was just a real fun and exciting project. And when we finally got it finished, um, it was, uh, it was a, a real eye opening experience. Um, we had a, uh, we had an interview with uh jim roberts at bass player magazine to demo the instrument to show it off and unfortunately ups brought the uh hip shot tuners late so instead of 10 30 they didn't show up till noon and so things got pushed back and pushed back we finally got the bass tacked together well enough that we could do something with it strung it up and we got in the car and um i don't know for some reason michael was driving and he gets to the end of the parking license. Wait a minute. Why am I driving? He's here. You drive. I'm going to get in the back seat. And this is a real testimonial to, to, to Michael's, you know, creativity and, and extraordinary abilities and, you know, in playing. So he gets in the back of the car and in, in the back seat with the hyper bass. I'm driving down to Cupertino. And in the 20 minutes or 30 minutes it took us to get down to Cupertino, he had set this thing up, adjusted all just a, a bunch of the parameters of the tunable bridge, which was new to him and he starts composing this song so we walk into uh the offices of bass player magazine and you know i people hardly knew who he was and didn't know you know what the instrument was about and um he plugs in and starts explaining what's going on with the instrument and uh, he starts playing this tune and everybody in the place is mesmerized i mean you you could hear a pin drop and what started off as the bass player staff, four or five people from bass player listening to him, it turned into the entire guitar player, keyboard player staff downstairs, craned in this little room, watching Michael diddle around on this bass that he's only played for like 20 minutes. And I mean, it was extraordinary. It was one of those things that you just, you know, you'd never experience again in life. So, um, yeah, that's uh, that's that's the story of the hyperbase man. And we we went to uh, when we went, when we went to the Nam show, uh, that was Michael's first show, and um, it was crazy because 
the first day we were there, he was playing in the booth, and you get people walking by, and then they do a double take, and they come back. And before, you know, by early afternoon, you know, people, the word was getting around, and people were coming by to see him play because it was just something that no one had ever seen before. And there was just a tremendous buzz at the show about the thing. And it put that base put both he and Zahn on the map, uh, both of us. It was really, uh, really just wonderful. Can we touch on some of the other signature models that you've built? Sure. I, I'm thinking of the one I saw recently with um, the Zemi Acoustic chambered bass for, for Dick. <laughs> What's that all about? Oh, that one. Yeah, yeah. Oh, um, that was one another one of those impossible tasks. Um, I managed to get myself talked into this stuff. I don't know how. <laughs> um, I do it. You know what? I, I do this because um, I love to experiment. I love the challenges. And I really enjoy learning from uh, the process. And so um, uh, Dick, uh, Dick is an, a, quite an extraordinary guy. He's, he's, he's a, a terrific human being, a good friend. Uh, he's, you know, you might not know it from the Meshuggah stuff, but He's an amazing player. He's got a jazz trio and stuff. He's yeah. all those guys are heavy into jazz, and um, you know it was it's it's it was it was great. And so um, he, uh, hang on just a sec. Need a splash of water there. Um, so um, Dick had this dream bass that he wanted to have made. And it was this uh, semi-acoustic. We called it, he named it the Zemi with a Z. And um, he wanted it to be this bass that would rival uh, Jonas Helborg's bass. And um, it's a six-string bass, 35-inch uh, scale with, no, 34-inch scale with 19-millimeter string spacing. Mm -hmm. So it's got a really wide neck. And... Um, so he wanted it to have sort of an electric acoustic vibe going with it uh, so that he could use it in his jazz recordings and his, his jazz uh, group. And so uh, we talked about, you know, tonal aspects of the instrument, uh, what, he, what he wanted to achieve with it, what the, you know, basically mapped out the goals. And... Um, so uh, I had built some uh, semi-acoustic stuff before and uh, really in in enjoyed doing that and uh, uh, learned a lot from, you know, the process again. And so I applied some of that previous experience to this bass here. <clears throat> Only this time, uh, I, we wanted to make it really have, have more of like an acoustic uh, a bigger body, have more of acoustic uh, tonality to it. And so um, I used uh, African mahogany, which is what we use for all of our basses. Uh, I like the, the, the tonality of it. It's, it's, it's very musical to me. Um, and so we gla we, I, I glued the slabs together and we made the, the body is, is four inches thick. And so I basically hollowed that out. And then... Um, I put the maple top on there. That was Dick's choice. He wanted maple. And so I made it a floating top so that uh, it's not, it's, it's just tacked around the edges. The, uh, it's just tacked around the uh, outside perimeter of the body. There's nothing really supporting it 
on the inside. And then, um, then I did the same thing with the bridge so that the bridge actually rests on the top of the body and it, uh, the string ball ends terminate the anchor at the, uh, at the end of the base where it's solid. There's a, a, a block that's part of that's inside the body where the string ends will terminate and, and live in a solid fashion. And uh, so the whole thing vibrates in a, in a very interesting way and has a very nice acoustic tone. And uh, originally we were trying to do the, um, the shadow system for the pickups. Mm-hmm. And uh, that didn't work out. Uh, we, had, we had issues with that whole thing. So we ended up using uh, the ghost pickups for the piezo. And um, then Bill Bartolini made a custom wound pickup for the neck, uh, a real thin single coil. Kind of, it was it was really kind of fashion over after um, what he's done for the jazz guitars. So the arch tops, because Bill's got you know well, he's he was offering a jazz uh, an arch top uh, pickup and a guitar pickup, and so um, he modeled that, took that sort of design, modeled that uh, bass pickup after the the uh, the arch top pickup that he made, and uh, so we did that, and then um, did a custom dual band uh, Bartolini circuit for it. And that's got some interesting frequency uh, uh, tweaks in it. So that uh, between the piezo and the magnetic, uh, you're able to get this. And, and, in the, and then the dual EQ, which gives you three bands of EQ for both the piezo and the electric, you get just a, a really nice variety of tones and blending capabilities. Yeah, it's a monster. <laughs> it's a mo- it, 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 it is a monster, yeah, yeah, and and he and he does a bang up job with that thing. I mean, he's he's uh, as he's you may have seen in the video, he's, yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. He's, he can play he can play the daylights out of that instrument. And it sounds wonderful. So, how about yeah. the bass you about- built for Bill from um, Faith No More, which is more of a just a single volume knob on there, right? Just like a stripped back. Not really. Uh, it's a, it's it's more than meets the eye. Um, Tell us about that. that yeah. Um, Bill and I have been good friends for over 20 years. Um, and, uh, you know, he's, he came to me uh, a few years back and said, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with these pedals and this and that. And, you know, I really want to get something. I want to build something into this instrument that really defines my sound. So uh, initially we were going to use uh, some pedal anyway he had a pedal that he he he, uh brought over so we had a chance to sort of zero in on the tone that he that you know is his sound and um over the course of time we found uh uh somebody uh to uh, at at greenhouse effects it's uh uh roy at greenhouse effects uh makes the circuit for us and um we basically sort of reversed engineered the pedal that he was using and added our own spin to it. Uh, Bill was very involved in that instrument, very involved in, in the, in the uh, electronics of that instrument. And so um, <clears throat> we basically took and copied the circuit and pickups from his old bases and then uh, incorporated this other Billy Gould circuit made for us by Greenhouse that uh, was sort of a um, next level up from the pedal that he was using, put it all in his bass. So, um, and that gives us that, that Bill Gould sound. 
So the thing is that um, there's a volume control on the uh, on the deck, and then there's a switch which allows you to engage or disengage the the, the effect that Bill uses. And then if you flip it around the backside, there's uh, a bunch of trimmers on, on the back cover, which allow you to access the electronics and as far as um, you can kind of tweak uh, the, the Bill Gould circuit if you want it to have a little more gain, a little more drive, a little more distortion or not. Um, and then there's uh, an EQ, uh, a row of EQ trimmers that allow you to adjust gain um, pickup level, um, base mid range of treble. So, you know, and we've done that. That's been actually, uh, we've done that for a lot of players. We did that, uh, for John Wetton on his, uh, signature base on, uh, on the black cat. And, uh, because John says, you know, um, it's, he's like, you know, I get nervous on stage as I'm kind of twiddling. I'm talking to, you know, talking to pe people on stage and I'm kind of twiddling with the knobs and the sound engineers going nuts. The house engineers going nuts because he just got me dialed in. Now I'm playing with the bass in trouble. I said, so just a single knob. And we did that same thing for him. Uh, God, we've done that for Robert Trujillo, just a number of players, Paolo. I mean, a lot of, a lot of guys like that fact that they just kind of set it and forget it. Mm -hmm. And they got the volume control on there. That same thing with Liam. Sure. Liam Wilson, from same kind of deal. Yeah. 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 The yeah. last thing I want to touch on, Joe, is sure. Um, um, it's amazing what you can do with all, for all these guys, and there seems to be a trend of certain builders who who are able to offer everything under the sun, which is incredible and it's great. But I think a real strength of yours is that at the same time you can you've developed some sort of very specific variations of these models based on your own experience. How important is that in in what you're offering, aside from all these spectacular kind of really signature things well you know again the signature stuff i do because i learned from it and it it opens up a new avenue for me to explore and a lot of times those things will find their way into production models for you know the normal end user um and so uh you know, I'm influenced by those, those experiments. It, it keeps us fresh. It keeps us innovative. Um, and it keeps things moving forward. It, it, it's, uh, nice to be able to say, Hey, you know, that worked out for him. We can roll that into a new instrument or an existing instrument that we're building to make it better, to make it better for the, uh, for the, uh, end user, the consumer player who's, you know, not necessarily touring the world, but, you know, wants to have that sound or, or, uh, be able to, uh, have that feature. So, uh, you know, that's, that's where it really, uh, really has its, its most value. Well, Joe, I'm a massive fan. And, um, guys, please oh, thank you. go and check out what Joe's doing. The website is www.zonguitars.com. Is that right? Have I got that right, Joe? Yep. Zonguitars.com. Exactly. Check it out guys. And, um, yeah, just, Go on YouTube, see what Michael's been doing with the hyper bass, see what these guys have been up to. It's just some really incredible stuff. And uh, yeah, keep up the good work, Joe. Well, thanks very much. It's been my pleasure to speak with you, Nick. Likewise. It's always a pleasure.
Thank thanks. You. Take care. Cheers. Okay, guys, thanks again for listening to this week's episode of the Scots Bass Lessons podcast. Huge shout out to Joe Zon for coming along and hanging out with Nick and sharing, you know, just the history of how, what he's done in his career. And it's really just amazing to hear like how he works with his artists, really inspirational. I absolutely loved listening to that, inf- in that interview myself. Now, if you are an Academy member, remember that you can actually check out all of the videos that like we do. It's not just audio. We actually record the video of all these interviews as well. And you can check that out at scottsbassessons.com if you are an Academy member. If you're not an Academy member and you don't know what we do at scottsbassessons.com, in a nutshell, we are the ultimate online bass school. We've got the largest and most comprehensive video course library of um, bass educational material in the world. We've got the coolest and, well, this is just the coolest bass faculty you've ever come across um, who do live streams for our students every single week where our students can interact with them in real time. You can submit videos, unlimited videos to me directly, if you're a member, for direct video feedback. Uh, Yeah, we're the ultimate online bass school and I wish you were a part of it if you're not already. And because of that, that's why we offer a 14-day free trial. So just go to scottsbasslessons.com and grab that 14-day free trial and take the entire platform for a test drive. It really is a completely new opportunity for bass players who are trying to push their bass playing to the next level. It's a really new opportunity because beforehand, you know, you could either get a one-to-one lesson in your area, wherever you lived, a lot of the time you end up with a guitar player who's trying to earn a little bit of extra cash on the side by teaching bass. Obviously, that's a really bad idea. And and the only other option that you had was to go to music school. And so many people are just not in that situation where they can. You know, you might have a full-time job. You might have kids. I know I've got kids. I've definitely got a full-time job doing this, obviously. Uh, but, you know, um, organizing scottsbasslessons.com and keeping uh, keeping the machine moving. But, you know, it might if, if you're looking to push your bass playing to the next level, you're a hobbyist bass player or you're already out there and gigging and you just want to get to that next level, check out scottsbasslessons.com. Check out the membership. It is for you. We have created this platform for you guys. As I said, it's a completely new opportunity that has come along really because of the power of technology and you know and we're utilizing that to create an educational platform um to surpass anything that has ever been before or and hopefully afterwards hopefully we'll just keep up you know keep up what we're doing and uh, and nailing it year in year out so other than that guys hopefully i'll see you in the membership over at scottsbasslessons.com and you know obviously i'll see you next week on the podcast take it easy and i'll see you in the shed mm-hmm.